Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. My name is Rosemary Bosky, and I'm a Chief Housing Inspector and the moderator for the Tenant Landlord Responsibilities and Realities Panel. And we're going to take a moment here um, and let the room transition. And while we do that, a couple housekeeping matters. If we can have individuals turn their cell phones and pagers to silent mode, we'd appreciate that. Um, as Bill said, we have other panels going on throughout the, this morning, and, and they will all be repeated tomorrow. Um, logistically, if, if you need the restroom, we've, it's my understanding that they are downstairs. The men's is to the uh, down the hall to your immediate left, and the ladies' restrooms are across around uh, to the other side of the building. And before I go ahead and uh, introduce our panel, if I could give just briefly a show of hands of those individuals who attended the landlord-tenant panel last year. Is there anyone here who has attended that from last year? Okay, thank you. Also, is, if I can get a show of hands of individuals who are residential tenants in this city. So if I could get a hand of, okay, very good. Thank you. And then as far as landlords, is there anyone here that is a residential landlord or represents a landlord? Thank you. All right. So I'm going to give you a moment to get settled in, and then we're going to go ahead and begin. Okay, let me go ahead and introduce the panel to you. Um, this particular PowerPoint presentation would not be possible without the gentleman sitting to my right. David Ng is an administrative analyst with the Department of Building Inspection in the Housing Division and was instrumental in helping us put this together. Um, then we have Delane Wolf, who's the Executive Director for the Rent Stabilization and Arbitration Board. We're happy to have Delane here today. She has a wealth of experience and expertise with respect to issues that property owners and tenants find themselves in with respect to rent control within the city and county of San Francisco. To, we're being joined also by Sarah Short, who is the director of the Housing Rights Committee, which is one of the contractors that the Department of Building Inspection has to help out with outreach as far as code enforcement issues. Then sitting immediately to the right of Delane Wolf is Yvonne Mare, a deputy city attorney with the Code Enforcement Division, who has great expertise in landlord-tenant issues and in addressing neighborhood and community complaints. We're happy to have Yvonne with us this morning. And then to Yvonne's right is Janan New, executive director with the San Francisco Apartment Association. Janan is um, spearheads an agency that is also one of the code enforcement outreach contractors that assists landlords and tenants in addressing substandard conditions uh, within uh, their buildings. Next to Janan is Senior Housing Inspector Matt Green. He's going to be talking a little bit about the code enforcement process and how to deal appropriately with lead paint safe work practices. And then next to him, last but not least, is Senior Housing Inspector Andy Cars, who is going to give you an overview for property owners on how to develop an adequate maintenance plan to avoid substandard conditions in your building. For those of you who have attended last year, um, this is something that is similar to what we presented and it bears repeating because we're here today to help you avoid 
costly repairs and deferred maintenance that has effect both on you and occupants of residential buildings ok so basically the presentation is going to include responsibilities and realities our outreach services developing a maintenance plan the code enforcement overview as I've said and then we're going to get discussion from the panel members and then have some question and answers and then we're going to take a moment at the end during the evaluation portion for me to give you some updated announcements on what's happening with the housing division and the services it provides so as far as tenant responsibilities what are those well essentially a tenant has a responsibility to bring substandard conditions to the attention of the property owner as soon as it becomes something that they're aware of so that the property owner has an opportunity to correct those they also upon doing that need to give the property owner upon uh, proper notification as required by state law which is typically 24 hours they need to give them access so that those repairs can be made and then also if the the residential tenant feels that those repairs have not been made adequately or there's not been a timely response by the property owner to call the housing inspection division so that we can take a look at this or to call our outreach contractors uh, if it's a situation that is not that severe so that we can assist you and assist the property owner in getting the work done so those are essentially the responsibilities of the tenant the landlord needs to survey their property frequently so that they can detect any kind of substandard conditions any hazardous situations and correct them quickly they need to maintain safe functional and sanitary housing and that really is the mantra of what why we're here today that is at the core of what we're trying to establish safe functional and sanitary housing and as soon as the property owner finds out about these conditions they need to take care of them as soon as possible also they need to respond to notices of violation in a timely way we really really encourage you to do that because what happens is, is when a property owner does not respond quickly we have a breakdown of communication a breakdown of cooperation and it generally results in more frustration for both the landlord the tenant and it ends up being more costly for the property owner and we'd like to avoid that and give you the tools with today's presentation to totally minimize those types of situations so what are the realities well the reality is as we all know that we have a housing shortage we have a high density of aging residential units in the city that abut each other and it with the design and the fact that these are older buildings not currently built to the fire protection standards of modern construction that we've got issues to deal with that requires with respect to design but it's sometimes timely and costly in making repairs so these are the realities that we we all know that both landlords and tenants are having to deal with so then the question is next slide please how do we deal with it how do we fit into this well the Department of Building Inspection tries to provide training and education such as what we're doing today we have our technical services division that provides monthly brown bag lunch seminars which if anybody has any information about that it's on our website or you can contact the department um, 
with the information that we've got at the back of the room. We also have a wealth of informational materials, both that you're going to see at the various tables today, also on the web. And we have our outreach contractors, two of which of the five are here today. We perform inspections, both with respect to complaints and also systematic inspections that are required by the San Francisco Housing Code. And we do a tremendous amount of interaction with other city agencies. And then when the need arises, we take code enforcement action. So the code enforcement outreach program also provides counseling, training, transit, translation services, and mediation. And Janan, Newt, and Sarah, excuse me, we'll probably talk a little bit about that today. This just gives you an idea of the types of agencies that we interact with. The health Department, Fire, Planning, Housing Authority, Tenants Groups, Property Owners Groups, other community groups, and then we have a listing there for you of the various contractors in this program. And please feel free to utilize them. We realize, and one of the reasons why we have this program, is that sometimes people are not comfortable coming to a city agency to find out about a situation that's bothering them with respect to some kind of hazardous condition at their building. And so you can either come directly to us or one of these agencies. They're all located within the communities, and they will be happy to help you. So again, remember we were talking a little while ago about safe, functional, and sanitary housing. Well, how does a property owner achieve that? What are the steps that they can take from a preventative medicine standpoint to do that? And I'm going to have Andy Cars come up and, and highlight some of the areas for you. If you want a copy of this actual checklist, it is in the, in the table at the back of the room, and it's also available on the website. So with that, I'm going to let Senior Housing Inspector Andy Cars come up and highlight some of that for you. Thank you, Chief Bosky, and uh, welcome and good morning. As uh, Chief Bosky mentioned, we would like to take this opportunity to highlight some of the aspects that are uh, necessary um, to develop a good maintenance plan. One of the first things is to get in and get out of a building. It's just as important. For, uh, as you know, in San Francisco, there's a shortage of space. However, your landings and your stairways is not a good idea to store your items. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's important for your tenants to be able to get in, have, um, to get out and have a, uh, a, a, a egress, uh, free egress to get out of the building, but it's just as important for your fire response, first response teams to be also able to get into a building. Your fire escapes and landings, they should also be, uh, it's important to keep them free of any debris or storage. Uh, your tenants like to um, store extra storage there on your landings, also uh, plant, store plants and so forth. Not a good place to uh, develop your gardening skills or expertise. Uh, 
Um, on your drop, drop ladders, uh, when the inspectors come by to do an inspection on this type of a buildings, it's a good idea to have someone else with you as we're going to ask you to demonstrate that the drop ladders function and go down properly. So it's a good idea to have someone else downstairs by the sidewalk area to direct traffic so no one gets hurt. Now granted, this is an extreme example of, uh, of the stairways or exterior stairways or structures. So however, is here to demonstrate what can happen if you don't have any kind of a maintenance plan in place uh, to periodically check your exterior structures to make sure they're stable and free of any wood decay or, uh, or wood rot. Um, a good tool to have is this, your everyday household screwdriver. Uh, if you go around and you suspect that there's some wood rot or some areas that seem to be uh, soft, uh, if you just tap it and the screwdriver goes through, it needs to be repaired. And as always, if you are going to make any type of repairs to your exterior structures or any structures, actually, uh, you should take out the proper uh, permits necessary. Your decks and um, utility ladders. Um, make sure your deck surfaces have uh, no wood rot or decay, that your joists, and if you look underneath, you look at your joists, make sure they're stable. On um, your utility ladders, um, are they safe? Are, are they properly bolted to the building? Are your rungs uh, okay? If someone were to climb up this utility ladders, are there any unsafe areas? Um, again, if someone were to go up this ladder and fall down due to any uh, decay or, or structure defects, it's your responsibility. It's whether or not they have permission to go up that ladder, it's your building and you have to maintain it. Do you know we live in an area that's earthquake prone and as such we should have a um, shut off tool nearby your gas meters. Um, as well as a diagram somewhere in the public area of the building detailing where the meters are located and instructions on how to shut it off. Also, uh, three units, any building three units or larger should have fire extinguishers that should be recharged and day tagged on an annual basis. This is one of the items that we also check for during our routine inspections. Next slide, please. This slide on the top depicts a um, typical time clock on a um, boiler system. Uh, the code requires 13 hours of heat be provided on all residential units. If the heating source is a central heat source, boiler, or, or gas uh, uh, heating system, the time clock should be uh, set for 5 to 11 in the morning and 3 to 10 p.m. That gives you your 13 hours of, of heat. Also, uh, your boilers, uh, remember this is the, we're coming into the fall, daylight saving time, so uh, make a note to adjust your clocks accordingly. It's also a good idea while you're developing this maintenance plan. Um, if you're gonna, you're gonna check, you're gonna change your clocks at least two times a year. It might be a good time also to change the batteries on your smoke detector, so at least that way you, you've changed them at least on two times a year. It's kind of a reminder, set the clock, change the batteries on your smoke detectors. Your boiler systems also need to be inspected and certified, and there should be something posted by your boiler system. Next slide, please. This slide has picked examples of uh, deferred maintenance. As you see here, you have water intrusion here, water intrusion here, um, ceiling and uh, wall damage, peeling paint, mold and mildew. 
Um, these are actual slides. These are actual units of people who live in there. And there. again, this is a, a good example of deferred maintenance. Next slide. Residential hotels, the uh, requirements are um, electrical cooking stove. There are not, gas stoves are not allowed on, on residential hotels. Uh, good, clean surface, non-porous surface for preparation of food, and also storage space for any of your essentials. On your light wells, uh, again, they should be maintained free and clear of any debris, not only for, uh, for sanitation reasons, but also for um, drainage purposes. In this slide, you have uh, water heaters. Uh, it's actually pretty good. This is uh, properly strapped, top third of the uh, water heater, bottom third of the water heater on both of them. It's properly vented. Uh, discharge line goes out to an approved source. If these water heaters or these water heaters were installed in the garage, you got to remember they have to be 18 inches above the ground, off the ground. And this is not what we want to do. You need to uh, provide clear, and it's important to, clear, to provide clear signage for your uh, residents or guests in the building. <laughs> Again, um, we never know when a fire is going to hit us, and the last thing you want to do is confuse the, the building occupants or tenants uh, when there's a danger. Um, which way do I go, that way or this way? So clear signage is very important. Next slide. Any building that's three stories or higher or five or more units needs to have a central alarm smoke, uh, alarm smoke panel, which needs to be inspected and also certified on an annual basis. Again, as uh, building inspectors, uh, house inspectors, we, this is one of the items we look for. On your hardwire smoke detectors, again, they should have uh, battery, they should have battery backups. And again, if you develop a plan where you're gonna change your batteries at least twice a year, then you're ahead of the game here. Next slide. Again, so now at this time, a good maintenance plan prevents injury, death, building damage, and promotes safe, functional, and sanitary housing. Again, this are just some of the highlights on how to develop a good maintenance plan. Um, in the rear of the room, we have some more brochures and other items that to help you develop and put together a good maintenance plan. At uh, this time, I'd like to turn this over to my colleague, Matthew Green. Thank you very much. Can we have that last slide? Before Matt gets up here, I want to tell a little story about this building. This building had a fatality after a fire. And prior to the fire in this particular building, Andy was out there doing an inspection on the adjacent property, and he was doing what we call a routine inspection of the common areas of the building. And at that particular time, the property owner wasn't quite keen about the fact that and he said, you need to recharge the fire extinguisher. You need to make sure that all your, your areas of egress, those wooden rear stairs, et cetera, don't have supplies on them. You're not using it for storage, et cetera. When this fire occurred, there were occupants in this building. They couldn't get out through the rear stairs of this building. They jumped from the roof of this building onto the next building and got out through the second means of egress in the adjacent property. When Andy went out there to take pictures after the fire, that property owner of the adjacent property walked up to him and thanked him so much for that inspection. 
Now he understood what this was all about. So keep in mind that when these buildings abut each other, that it could be that you may be using that adjacent property to get away from an emergency situation. I was just asked the other day why we're so picky about having garbage cans not under stairways, and that if they are under any overhang of the building, it requires a fire sprinkler. And the reason is, if anybody flicks a cigarette in that, in that container and it goes up, where is it usually at? It's usually in the tradesman's area. It's usually in the second means of egress, right next to the one to, of the adjacent property. So my point here is, is these buildings, as far as construction and type and design and how they sit on the lot, are all interrelated. So when the inspector comes out there, and asks you to, as a property owner, to retag those fire extinguishers, not hang things on the fire escape, et cetera, all those things. The life that you may be saving may be your neighbor. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, my name is Matthew Green. I'm a senior housing inspector with the Department of Building Inspection. And, um, Part of your maintenance plan might be uh, you decide to paint the building, and we developed some uh, um, an ordinance uh, with proper work practices for lead-based paint. Um, and this came about with, uh, over concerns about lead poisoning in children, uh, mostly under six years old or pregnant women. And um, we presume there's going to be lead-based uh, paint on any building built before 1979 unless you can um, uh, get a uh, certified lead inspector to test the building and prove that it's not because uh, lead-based paint was phased out at that time. Um, now this ordinance actually, um, it affects not just painting, it also affects any um, demolition work or stucco removal. Um, window replacement comes up a lot. Um, and anytime you're going to be actually scraping the paint or moving, removing painted um, building materials. Um, this, this comes into effect. And the ordinance uh, applies to both the interior and exterior residential buildings, and uh, recently it's been adopted to cover the exterior of commercial buildings. And, um, you know, the requirements are fairly simple. Uh, we have a notification requirements. If you're going to be doing um, any work that is going to be disturbing lead-based paint, we ask that you uh, notify your neighbors that you're going to be doing this work. You can do that by posting a sign that the department will provide at the front of the building. Um, but if that's not practical, we, um, we have a letter that you can fill out and mail to your neighbors just informing them that this work is going to be happening. And we also ask you that you inform um, any occupants of the building that you'll be doing uh, this work uh, three days before. And that's the idea just so they, you know, if they're concerned about the lead-based paint, they, they can uh, relocate for a, d a few days. Um, uh, basically, there's, the, there's a few prohibited practices. You can't torch off paint anymore, and you can't use heat guns that uh, heat up to above 1,100 degrees. But you can do um, pretty much anything else you want as long as you provide the uh, proper containment, which means um, six mil plastic on the ground. We want you to catch all the paint debris. Um, you, know, you can hydro wash your uh, building. You can scrape it. You can sand it. But you have to, you have to catch the paint debris. That's, I mean, that's the basic simple thing. Um, and, and part of that is we, we, don't, we want you to restrict the access to the work area. So we, you, if you have your plastic on the ground, you're catching the paint debris, that's great.
But if you're allowing all the neighbors and the tenants to walk through that, they're dragging that paint debris, um, you know, back home with them, back into their apartments. So you need to restrict the access to the work area. Um, so uh, once you get, you know, it sounds simple to put your containment down, but it, it gets a little uh, tricky depending upon the uh, nature of your building, the, uh, the layout of your landscaping, stuff like that. Um, so we're happy to uh, meet with you out there before you start work and show you uh, what, what might work or what's a good idea. But um, basically, at, at the end, you're, going, you're responsible for your work practices and, you know, containing the, the lead paint the debris. And Another part of the thing is you have to prevent, you have to have your containment down, but you have to prevent the migration of the paint debris. Just because you have your containment down, it, it does have to work. You can't, you can't let the uh, paint debris or the work debris, you know, let the wind blow it into your neighbor's yard or blow down the street into the neighbor's school or stuff like that. So you, you have to prevent the migration of the debris. And we ask you to do uh, some regular cleanup, at least once a day or more if required, depending on the uh, circumstances of the building. And, um, It's fairly simple, and um, I'll be here after if you have any specific questions, or you can ask during the question answer period. But um, basically, we don't want to stop you from doing the work with lead-based paint, but we just want you to, you know, uh, think of your neighbors and the occupants of the building and keep them safe. Uh, lead poisoning is a terrible disease for children, and we're trying to mitigate that as much as possible. So, uh, thank you. Next. And so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about our entire uh, code enforcement uh, process. So um, let's see here. For those, uh, you know, property owners who do find themselves involved in the code enforcement process, um, either as a result of complaint or of our systematic code enforcement, I'm going to try and make the process um, a little less intimidating because, uh, you know, dealing with the city bureaucracy can be kind of scary. And I'm here to tell you it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> so now we do have... Uh, you know, systematic enforcement. The housing code requires that we uh, do regular inspections of uh, multi-unit buildings. By that, I mean uh, buildings of three or more uh, units. And um, we do periodic health and safety inspections of these buildings. And during a routine inspection, your inspector will be looking at the common areas of the building. Um, this includes, but not limited to, to the hallways, stairways, garages, laundry rooms, um, we're definitely looking at the stairs and the fire escapes, uh, any uh, appendages to the, the properties. And um, you'll, you'll, receive, if you ever, you'll, you'll receive a letter from the Department of Building Inspection saying it's time for your uh, routine inspection, and that'll have a time and a date where the inspector will be there. And we ask you that you, um, you know, call the inspector's contact information will be on that letter. And we ask you to uh, call and confirm or reschedule because uh, the inspector is going to show up at that time and he's going to uh, do the inspection and it would be easier for everybody if you're there with the inspe uh, inspector. But we also go out as a result of uh, complaints. Um, we accept complaints from both uh, tenants or neighbors um, and we're, we're required to respond to any complaint. So if we get a complaint from a, a tenant, oh. <laughs> uh, the inspector will go out and respond. Um, you know, a life safety complaint will respond within 24 hours. Uh, other complaints will respond within uh, 48 hours. And uh, any tenants who wish to file a complaint, you can call the Housing Inspection Services at 558-6220. Um, let me see here. So 
what will happen here, the inspector will go out and inspection. Um, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll inspect the, uh, the property, and if there are any violations to the housing code or building code or any other code, he'll write um, a notice of violation. And this notice of violation will uh, list the violations and the corrective measures. Uh, sometimes it might require you to take a, a building permit or a plumbing permit, electrical permit to make these repairs. And um, it'll give you a, a reinspection date for compliance. Um, you know, that uh, compliance deadline is based on the uh, nature and the seriousness of the complaints. Uh, we'll have a very short um, uh, compliance deadline for like a lack of heat or some other life safety measure. But uh, we'll give you up to say 30 days for the general maintenance uh, violations. And it'll have a date and time of a reinspection on that notice of violation. Um, the inspector will mail you a notice of violation and also post it on the um, building. And hopefully, as, when the date comes for the reinspection, all the work is done and any permits are required have been uh, obtained and signed off by the proper inspectors, whether the building inspector, electrical inspector, plumbing inspector. Um, and everything's done at the time of that reinspection. And then we'll close the case, and that's it, and everybody's happy. Um, that's the ideal thing, and I'd say usually. That generally is what happens, but sometimes we, uh, it, it doesn't quite work out that way. <laughs> uh, for uh, some reason, um, uh, landlord just is not, uh, chooses not to comply or runs into other difficulties, and we'll have to set up what we call a director's hearing. Um, uh, they're held every Thursday, the Department of Building Inspection at 10 a.m., actually one starting at about 45 minutes if you want to run down there and check them out. But uh, it's a public hearing. Uh, you'll receive, as a, uh, all the interested parties will receive notice about 10 days beforehand uh, stating the um, date and time of the hearing. Like I said, they're Thursdays, 10 a.m. at the Department of Building Inspection. And that's uh, an opportunity or venue for uh, the uh, property owners and tenants to state their case. Um, they can give testimony saying why they're unable to comply or why they need more time or what's the... Um, you know, they can explain the situation. And um, there'll be a decision made at the hearing. They might, uh, might issue an order of abatement, uh, which is basically a recorded order uh, ordering you to make the repairs within a set amount of time. Um, this order is recorded down at the assessor's office. Um, you'll get a, uh, a copy of registered mail. will also be one posted on the building. Um, but they also might give you an advisement, which is a little more time, but, but they still want you to comply. If you don't finish up at the end of the advisement period, an order of abatement will be issued. Um, so an order of abatement, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a recorded cloud on your title. Uh, it is a serious thing. Uh, once the order is issued, uh, the department, if you see down here, we're, we're um, able to uh, recoup the cost of our whole um, Inspection process, that's the time the inspector spent um, doing the inspections, writing the notice of violations, doing any research, the time that the clerical staff uh, spent uh, setting up the hearing or uh, recording the order and revoking the order of abatement, all that time. So it, there is some, uh, it, it will cost you if you get an order of abatement. And once um, the order of abatement is issued, and you're given a certain amount of time, we, you know, you still have to go, you still have to make the repairs, so it's still, it's to your benefit to do it before it goes to the director's hearing stage. 
And we also have a few other tools once we've reached this stage. We can refer you to the Franchise Tax Board. Um, and when, if they determine that your building has been um, substandard, they'll disqualify some of your, um, your, your write-offs on your taxes, and they might reassess your taxes. Um, if it's really serious, we might refer the case to the litigation committee, uh, which will decide whether we want to uh, take legal action. And we'll bring in Yvonne and the uh, city attorney's office. Um, or, we, or we might issue a criminal citation, uh, a misdemeanor, or an infraction to, uh, based on the seriousness of the uh, case. So, um, but basically the end result is we want you to uh, make any repairs necessary, uh, create a safe building, and um, like the end result here is to abate these cases. And would the, the cases be abated when, when all the corrections are made and uh, you know, all the code violations are corrected. And with that, I'll turn it back to uh, Chief Inspector Bosky. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Okay, what we're going to be doing now is hearing from our guest panel members, and then we're going to take question and answers after that. So um, Sarah Short is the director for the Housing Rights Committee, and she um, has a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with tenant and related landlord issues. So we're going to now hear from Sarah. Hi, I'd like to thank uh, the DBI for having us here today. I think it's really important to have the uh, tenants' rights perspective here. Um, we've been working for a number of years um, in conjunction with the Department of Building Inspection, the Apartment Association, um, and uh, many other tenant rights groups uh, who folks are referred to often from the rent board. Um, so we've, we've got a, a good little um, system here, I think, how we all coordinate with one another to ensure that uh, buildings are habitable. And um, we found that um, it really works. Um, residents come to us with often problems that they've had uh, real trouble getting repairing, repaired um, in the past and feel, you know, usually come to us with a, a certain level of frustration about what do I do next. And we're able to work with these other groups um, and do referrals, and we really can get repairs done this way. And, and it's, it's uh, sort of beautiful to watch. Um, we've also been really pleasantly surprised at our um, relationship that we form with the Apartment Association. Um, that's, not, that's not usual. Um, it's not something that you might come across in other cities where um, – some of us who are at other times on the opposing team, um, you know, actually work together um, in, a, in a way that we make referrals back and forth. We actually, um, we actually are in the same room at the same time with our <laughs> site visits. Um, and, you know, we end up having a relationship where we're communicating frequently about certain cases and work together. Um, and it's a really nice um, fit because will be reporting the problem from a tenant, you know, perspective again. Um, but we have the landlord partners who will at the same time um, be working with the landlords to address the problems. Often landlords just simply don't understand their responsibilities or their tools, the tools that they have to um, make repairs. Um, not, not a hammer and a, a, a wrench, but, you know, the other, the other tools in terms of resources that they have to tap into. Um, 
and um, they're really helpful on you know the sort of double team approach um, and you know with with DBI as the the um, agency that we can go to um, to make the you know in, the enforcement side of things clear um, it, it really helps to ensure that our housing stock in general in San Francisco um, is improved um, and that residents are not displaced due to um, poor housing conditions um, and things like that um, um, so, I mean, this is at this point, I think, pretty tried and true um, as, as a uh, system where we, you know, coordinate with, with one another and do referrals. And um, it's, it's something that we, I think, from, from the Housing Rights Committee's um, view, would only want to expand in the future. Um, it, it's uh, a way that I think Rosemary said it earlier um, you know, tenants who may not feel comfortable going to the city directly um, have fears about, you know, making waves um, and also just feeling like they want um, to see someone right in their community and especially who speaks their language and, you know, someone that they may already have some ties with. Um, folks will come to us and uh, they, they may not even know at that point that the Department of Building Inspection exists. Um, they may not know that there are other ways besides, um, you know, constantly making the phone call to their landlord or, or whatever. They, at some times, will come to us with other problems and not even realize that the, the issue they have with the repair um, is supposed to be addressed. They may be living in conditions that are, um, you know, maybe substandard and not even be aware that, that they have the rights to improve those conditions. So it, it really helps for, you know, community groups to kind of be the gateway where, where folks come to, um, and then we have at our fingertips all the resources to um, refer to DBI and to bring in other partners such as the Apartment Association and ensure that those repairs get done. So um, I'll be here to take questions with everyone else, but I, I thank you again, uh, the, the Department of Building Inspections, for having this panel today. I'm glad that we're letting people know about these programs. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Next, we're going to hear from Delane Wolf, Executive Director of the Residential Rent Board. I shortened the name there. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry Delane. Hi, everyone. You're so far away. I feel like I'm on a football field, and that is not one of my skill sets. Um, the actual name of the rent board is the San Francisco Residential Rent Stabilization and Arbitration Board, so you can hardly fault Rosemary for not wanting to come up with that mouthful. Um, I'm basically going to just take a couple minutes to tell you what the rent board does and doesn't do. Um, the, we don't make anybody fix anything. That's what my esteemed colleagues on this panel are all about. But what we do with the rent board is we raise the rent and we lower the rent. And that's pretty much it. We also investigate allegations of wrongful eviction, but we don't stop a landlord from taking a tenant to court. We don't give legal advice. The State Bar of California gets very upset when a bunch of city employees start giving legal advice. So if you come into my office and that's what you're looking for and you're not getting it, it's not that my staff doesn't want to help you. It's really that they're precluded from doing so. They can, however, give you a ton of information, and we pride ourselves on having a ton of information. We also are translating all of our information into Chinese and Spanish, and we're 
really proud of the fact that we're kind of in the vanguard of city agencies in terms of having all of our translated materials up on our website is our goal for this year. Um, so we hope to be, you know, to have all this information accessible to non-English speaking communities in the very near future. If you want information about rent control, about the rent ordinance, we have uh, informational brochures. You can get everything that we have on our website, which is www.sfgov.gov.org slash rent board. You can also call. We have an informational line with you know, 8 million topics that guaranteed to put you to sleep. So if you're an insomniac in the middle of the night, call 252-4600. And if that doesn't work, we really do have live bodies that will answer your questions. And counselors can be reached at 252-4602. Uh, I want to tell you that there are people, of course, think of the rent ordinance as a pro-tenant ordinance. It is in terms of keeping rent stabilized in the city and county. But my staff is there to try and decipher this law, to translate it from legalese into English for you. That's really what they're there for. We give the same information to landlords and tenants. If you call, sometimes my staff will ask you, are you a landlord or a tenant? Not so they can decide to give you bad advice if you're a landlord, but because so that they can frame the answer in the way that's the most beneficial to you. There are things in this law for landlords and for tenants. Uh, in terms of repairs, because that's obviously what our major focus is today, tenants who haven't had repairs made can, as I said, we don't make people fix things, but if a tenant has a leaky roof and they've been swimming through the living room on their way to work in the morning, they can file a petition for a rent reduction for substantial decreases in their housing services, which just gives the landlords a little more economic incentive to make the repairs, obviously. They also can fight an annual rent increase if the landlord has failed to make requested repairs that are required by state and local law. Obviously, the operative words there are requested. We don't expect landlords to be clairvoyant and required by state and local law, which is where DBI would come in. For landlords, if you do the work, we want to provide you with an incentive to do the work. So if you do the work, you can pass the, the cost of the work through, depending on the size of your building, at either 50% or 100% of the cost plus interest by filing a capital improvement petition. And we know these forms look really odious and really obnoxious, but they're there to spoon feed you through it. And we actually heard a lot of comments from small landlords saying that our forms were just too daunting. So we streamlined them, got rid of about five pages, and um, they are basically capital improvements. You do the work. You, can, you have a quick little hearing, and the tenants will help pay for the cost of that work. So that's not an excuse not to, not to do the work. Um, if new landlords buy a building, they can file a petition based on their increased expenses. There are lots of, of ways that landlords can use the rent ordinance to benefit themselves. Um, there are provisions in there to increase the rent, believe it or not. Um, I encourage you to come in and over to 25 Van Ness and stop by and see us at room 320, suite 320. We're there every day from 8 until 5. And obviously, if you've educated yourself in advance a little bit, it will be really helpful. The counselors are, are really extremely excited when people do that. Um, and I think you get maybe a little bit better, at more focused attention if you come in. Um, than when you call on the phone, although either way, you know, people are there to help you. Thank you, Delane. 
how many people here are new property owners, new residential landlords? Okay, a few of you in the back. I strongly encourage you to visit 25 Van Ness and pick up their information. They have a wealth of brochures and information for first-time landlords. Next, we have Yvonne Mare, who is a deputy city attorney, and she's in the code enforcement division within the city attorney's office, has great expertise in dealing with landlord and tenant issues, and helping landlords help us make repairs on their buildings so that we could get both achieve abatement of substandard conditions within their buildings. And with that, Yvonne. Thanks, Chief. Good morning. As Chief Bosky said, my name is Yvonne Murray, and I am one of 10 deputy city attorneys here in San Francisco whose charge is to use civil laws to abate public nuisance. Now, you might ask yourselves, what is a public nuisance? And it is all sorts of different things. But for our purposes today, a public nuisance is created when buildings are maintained in a substandard fashion. Now, you heard substandard described by Chief Bosky and senior inspectors Green and Cars. And substandard housing is a health and safety issue. The conditions that you saw some photos of that were delineated by the inspectors that constitute substandard housing can be found in our local, our municipal San Francisco housing code. And if any of you are curious, you can find that on the web at the, government, at the city's website www.sfgov.org and look for municipal codes. Now, prop, you should all know by now that property owners have a duty to maintain properties in compliance with the housing code and in a health and safe fashion. And tenants have a right to live in buildings that are properly maintained. Now, I'm sure that all the property owners here are going to heed the department's suggestions and maintain your properties. And especially since I have the unenviable task of telling you the consequences of not doing so, and they are significant. As Inspector Green noted, I work alongside my colleagues at the Department of Building Inspection to ensure that our housing code is followed and enforced. Now, consequences of not complying can result in civil litigation filed against the property owner for maintenance of maintaining these substandard conditions. And that litigation would be brought by one of the ten lawyers in our unit, um, on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco and the people of the state of California. In that, in that litigation, we would seek three categories of things. One are civil penalties. Civil penalties for violating the housing code are up to $1,000 a day. You can imagine why the maintenance of these substandard conditions and the fact that it impacts residents' health and safety is what merits such a high penalty. We would also seek what's called injunctive relief, which is basically a court order asking that the court compel the property owner to do certain things, fix the conditions that are substandard, maintain the property in a nuisance-free condition for X number of years, anywhere up to five is usually what we ask for, and for attorney's fees and costs for the city having to bring this litigation. Now, I say that 
hoping that with the knowledge of your, for those of you who are property owners, with the knowledge of your responsibilities and the consequences for violating the housing code, that the next time you see me or any of our colleagues will be at next year's summit and not in court. So I will be here to answer any questions that you may have, but that's a brief overview of what can happen. Thanks, Chief. Now that we've frightened you to death, um, uh, understand that the consequences can be severe, and the whole purpose today is to try and help both landlords and tenants avoid those types of conditions. We refer not that many cases to the city attorney, but when we do, they're serious in nature, like those stairs that we just had. I mean, that was an actual condition that we had in the city, uh, and anybody looking at that would know that that's a situation that occurred over a period of time and should not have uh, developed into that type of situation. We've got our contact information up on the board, and we have that information at the back table. What I'm going to do now is open this up to questions, and what we would like you to do is come and come to the one or the two microphones here in the aisle, and if you have any questions that are specific to a code enforcement action, we would ask that you hold those until after the session, and we'll be happy to meet with you on those separately. But any general questions you have, we're happy to answer. So if we have anybody that has any questions, we'd invite you to come to the microphone and let, let us know what your questions are. Hi. Thank you very much for all your input. It's very helpful to the public. My name is Ernestine Weiss, and I'm an activist in the city. And I would like to know why the building code can't be changed so that landlords have to paint. I'm living in a building for 21 years. It's never been painted. The carpeting is not cleanable anymore. Why isn't the code changed to require landlords to do these basic functions? They have this in New York. They have to paint every three years. All right, if it's too soon, make it every five years. But this should not go uh, unattended. So I would like to see the codes changed as quickly as possible. People should not have to live under these conditions and have to fight the landlords. Make the code stringent so that we get what we're entitled to in this city. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Weiss. Uh, one of the things that she's referring to is, is that while the housing code talks about the property owner having to take care of substandard conditions, there isn't a specific code section that requires a landlord paint the interior of someone's unit every so many years, as there are in some other jurisdictions. And if anybody is ever interested in, in having the code change, we do have a code advisory group that you can come to the public meetings when the codes are changed, and we're happy to get that information to you, Ernestine, after the meeting. Thank you for coming. There was one other question also. Uh, I don't know whether this comes under your jurisdiction, but uh, why are landlords allowed to have corporations take over their properties, taking away from uh, more, um, affordable housing? people that they can't afford to live here anymore. So they're reducing the stock and raising the rents, which is unbelievable in this city. And also, um, they, 
There's so many violations, I can't begin to tell you. They have, in my high-rise apartments, which is the second largest in the city, that's Golden Gateway, they allow corporations, as I said. They allow hotels. Would you believe the Marriott sends their overflow to our apartments to engage in rentals there? How can this be stopped? I mean, isn't there something in the code that should say that? I'm going to let Delaine Wolf answer some of those questions for you. Hi, Ernestine. Nice to see you. You're not going to like my answer. You know that a few years ago, the Board of Supervisors enacted an anti-hotelization ordinance, but it does not address the problem sufficiently. That's quite clear. Um, it was very, to be perfectly honest, it was very watered down, and it, it, it's not working. So you know where the Board of Supervisors are, and I know that they know you really well, and that's what has to happen. Thank you. Next question. Good morning. First, I'd like to thank the Department of Building Inspection. You guys have done an excellent job, very well organized, and I love the PowerPoint. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. Uh, one, Chief, you stated that you didn't bother garbage cans. Is it a law that you must have a garbage chute in the apartment building? No, a garbage chute is not required in an apartment building, but if you do have it, it has to be maintained properly. And the, there needs to be sprinkler heads at the top, the bottom, and at certain levels depending upon the height of the structure. So if you have one and you don't wish to use it anymore, then it has to be permanently welded shut. But if you do have it, then it has to be maintained and it has to have the proper uh, sprinklers in the chute itself. So you go to plumbing for that. And then also if you have a situation where it gets blocked, you need to make sure that it's you know, looked at very frequently so that if it's jammed or whatever, it's kept clean because obviously if it does get jammed, that's going to create a hazardous situation. Okay, I have two others. Mr. Cars, you mentioned notice of violation. Does that also apply to condo owners? Like if they won't let you in an apartment for a repair and they uh, started to flood down, does that same refer when you say that they get a notice of violation? Oh, I, didn't notice, I didn't mention notice of violations, but it does apply oh, to Oh, I'm condo. sorry, I got the it's wrong okay. person. But it does apply to uh, condo, to condo I, owners also. Okay, I apologize. And then my last question is, if a company buys a building where there are a lot of elderly people and it, uh, a lot of repairs need to be done in the apartment, they go to the renter and say, you know, we, give me a list of your repairs. They're given to them. I'll tell you what, I'll give you another apartment. You can move there. And what they try, basically what they're trying to do is lure these people out of their apartment, put them in another apartment where it's not rent control. Who would they uh, go to uh, to complain? I, I know you have Housing Rights Committee, Rent Board, City well, Attorney. Well, there's, there's a couple people that I'd like to respond to that. One would be Delane, and the next person would be Yvonne. Okay. If I understood your question correctly, it's the landlord is going to do repairs, and so they ask the tenant to move to another unit, and therefore they say that the unit would not be rent controlled? No, somebody bought the building. Uh -huh. So ABC bought 850 Bryan uh -huh. Street, for example, uh -huh. and they're telling all the tenants, give me a list of your repairs, and they're being uh -huh. very, very friendly uh -huh. to coerce them. And they say, well, you know, all these repairs need to done. I'll tell you what, I'll give you another apartment in another building I have. You can have that, unbeknownst to them, that eventually once they do this repairs, they're not going to go back, and then that way they, they can have this apartment to jack up the rent. Well, 
first of all, the tenant doesn't have to take them up on their offer. If people don't assert their rights, then it's very difficult for anybody to do anything. But nobody would have to take such an offer. And if a landlord initiates it, if it was a building, if it was a unit in another building, then it would be decontrolled. The rent would be decontrolled. But, for example, if the landlord is going to do repairs in the building that the tenant lives in and they say, okay, here, in this building, I'm offering you another unit while I do these repairs. If the tenant moves at the landlord's request to accommodate the landlord's need to make repairs, then it's not decontrolled. It's not considered a new tenancy. It would be continue, a continuing tenancy. If the tenant moves at the tenant's request, they say, I want to move to another unit, then that would be a new, a new tenancy at an increased rent. But a tenant doesn't have to move in San Francisco without a just cause reason for eviction in a rent-controlled building. And repair work is a just cause reason only if the landlord has gotten the permits to make the repairs, if the unit is going to be uninhabitable while the repair work is being done, and then the tenant has a right to move back into the unit after the repairs are done, and the landlord can then file the capital improvement petition that we referred to before. Thank you. The only thing I would add to that is that we operate a hotline. So if you know people that are in that circumstance, I would encourage you to have them call 554-3800 and ask for the uh, hotline, the code enforcement hotline, and we can investigate to ensure that all the proper procedures are being followed. And that's city attorney. Yes. Thank you. Before we take another question, I am remiss. I forgot one panelist because my glasses were up here instead of on my nose. So Janan New is the executive director of the SF Apartment Association and a crucial player that Janan and that association in helping landlords and tenants deal with these issues. So I think it's important that we hear from Janan. We may even be able to get her to talk about baseball. <laughs> Hi, Rosemary. Thank you so much for inviting me here today to participate uh, in this panel with my esteemed colleagues uh, from some of the community-based organizations, uh, the City of San Francisco, and, uh, of course, uh, the Department of Building Inspection, who I'd like to thank for having me here and uh, allowing us to participate uh, in this community program, the Code Enforcement Outreach Program. The San Francisco Apartment Association this year is celebrating its 90th anniversary uh, as an organization that was created to uh, not only educate but advocate for the landlords of San Francisco. Uh, I must say that I'm very proud to represent the landlords in San Francisco uh, because I think that all of you provide a very good sit, uh, service to the city. Uh, it, it's very important to keep tenants uh, housed in sort of a diverse, sort of interesting housing stock that we have here, and it's a lot of hard work uh, keeping that housing stock up to par and uh, dealing with all the different governmental agencies and regulations that you heard about here today. We are located at 265 Ivy Street. We're a community-based organization. Our website is sfaa.org. We're a trade organization that is funded through uh, membership dues. People join like AAA, and we provide referrals to you uh, in the area of contractors, attorneys, 
uh, insurance needs, or anything that you might need to uh, operate successfully as a rental housing provider in the city. Uh, we have education programs that are ongoing that we not only educate owners, but your staff uh, and or your resident managers, because as we know, every building over 16 units in the city is required to have a resident manager. So we communicate with those individuals too and try to educate, educate them. We have a monthly publication. It's a magazine that goes out to about 3,500 people in San Francisco. It focuses educating them not only on uh, code issues as we partner with the Department of Building Inspection. Uh, we also partner with the Rent Board in trying to disseminate uh, information out to owners. Both Deline and Rosemary have been guest uh, columnists in our magazine, uh, and it's fairly well-read publication you can find aspects of it online. Um, we are not attorneys in our office, although we do counsel people on appropriate uh, property management uh, uh, questions that they may have, answering those. And uh, we are bilingual. Uh, our, our Chinese is a little bit better than our Spanish, but uh, we can uh, get resources to help you if you're a monolingual individual that needs assistance. We're parented or partnered with the California Apartment Association and the National Apartment Association, so we uh, try to disseminate both state and national laws and incorporate them into uh, some sort of uh, understandable local housing policy for owners. The Code Enforcement Outreach Program was started, and we just celebrated our 11th anniversary. Uh, Supervisor Ross Mercurimi uh, threw a party in his office honoring this great program. I'm proud to be one of the people that started the program uh, in the city. It's been very successful, probably one of the best programs I've seen in getting owners and tenants to communicate. And as you've heard a lot here today about the political antagonism that uh, exists between uh, the owner-tenant groups in, in San Francisco. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, we really strive to work together to not uh, serve that antagonistic political base, but rather to solve problems, uh, to avoid litigation, which the program was designed to do, and to give owners their, the ability to get their properties fixed in a timely manner and tenants to be provided with a great uh, apartment unit to live in that's safe and habitable. So that program um, has gone a long way in really achieving that goal, and I think it's probably one of the best things that our City Board of Supervisors has authorized in the last 11 years uh, to help improve the housing stock in San Francisco and also improve the relationships between uh, the two uh, antagonistic political bases sometimes. So thank you very much, and that's it. Thank you, Janine. We'll now go ahead and take some more questions. Sir, did you have a question? I have a question. Uh, you guys thoroughly mentioned what you can do to help uh, tenants have their landlord clean up the property when it's being neglected. 
but you didn't address what happens when a tenant is neglecting the unit. Uh, for example, I have two tenants in different properties that have double-pane vinyl windows, and they never open them. They boil food and water all day long, and so they have black fungus on the interior of their apartments. Then they call, I don't know who up on the board they call, they call somebody who comes out and gives me an NOV for having an uh, unsafe, unhealthy place for my tenants to be living. I didn't cause the problem, so what do you suggest I do in that situation where I don't want to have to undergo an unnecessary cost where the problem is borne by the tenant and not the landlord? That's an excellent question, and I'm glad that you asked it. With respect to the Department of Building Inspection, the housing code really addresses our legal link to compel somebody to do something is with the property owner. So what you're talking about is a situation where a tenant has, through whatever behavior, allegedly caused a condition that may have created an unhelpful situation and a code violation in a unit or somewhere in a building. And this comes up. We also get situations where a property owner will tell us that a tenant has, has damaged the building and has therefore caused the violations. The problem for us and for you is, is that we cannot cite under the housing code a tenant for their behavior. The health department can in certain situations, but the Department of Building Inspection can't. You are essentially responsible for that tenant's behavior when it comes to your building and, and the structure itself. So what can you do about that? Well, from the standpoint of dealing with the tenant and that behavior, I'm going to let some of the other experts in this panel deal with that. And, Janan, I think that may be one that you should start with. Yeah, I, I think sometimes uh, with owners that are having issues with their tenant, if you call us proactively instead of waiting for a housing inspector to, to be called, we can interact with you in trying to get the tenants to correct their behavior. There are some tools that we've found to be successful. And, you know, such, such as? Such as if you called me today with this issue, I would um, find out, of course, what the history of your communication with the tenant has been, if there's ever any language barriers. And we can talk offline. I don't want to waste everybody else's time with this process. And then possibly partner with Sarah's office uh, on the tenant side if there's a breakdown in communication. And um, if need be, Sarah would come out and represent the tenant, I would come out or one of my colleagues to represent the owner, and we'd physically do an inspection and try to mediate the issue right there to, to find out, um, you know, if it's a behavior issue, if it's a uh, housing habitability issue before the city got involved, and that's what the Code Enforcement Outreach Program was designed to do. Um, it's just I don't have enough information right now to provide you a better answer than that, but we can talk offline or you can call me later. Okay, one more question. Uh, what about tenants who change their locks repeatedly <clears throat> and don't provide landlord a key Okay, so well, no access? I, I would, uh, since I have the mic, I would just tell you that, you know, there's laws in place to protect you for that, and that's another issue that Sarah and I can, could probably mediate on. Well, since you guys are all here, I'd like to have a few answers, because I have called the rent board on this, and they've, the rent board has told me that they have the right to change the lock so long as they provide me a key. But that's Is correct. That correct. 
That's my understanding of the law also. And I am your advocate, sir, and I have never talked to you. I know. I'm a member of, of your organization. Okay. And, yeah. and if you call me, I'm telling you, I'll, I'll help you on this. And, you know, I'm sorry I can't give you all the answers today, but it's a public forum, and there's a lot of people here. I don't want to bore them. Okay. But I appreciate your time. Sarah, Sarah and I can help try to get that problem resolved with your tenants and get you a key because, yes, you're right, you do have a legal to right to have the key to the – to the unit. Okay, thank you. And let me just add that I think this is actually a, a pretty um, great example of why in the uh, code enforcement outreach program works and, and how it works. Um, in a situation like this, uh, well, the landlord may be contacting Janan and her association um, because they're, they're facing a problem with their tenant's behavior. Um, it can work both ways. As I mentioned earlier, a tenant may come to us and we may um, seek out the apartment association's help in uh, getting the landlord to do, sort of do their part. Um, as Janan mentioned earlier, you may go to Janan and she'll uh, enlist us in working on the, the tenant's behavior. Um, and, and that's often what we do as much as we work with tenants to assert their rights. We also spend a lot of time often working with tenants to um, follow, the, you know, abide by their responsibilities as well. And, and sometimes it really is just a communication issue. A tenant may be very unaware of the fact that, you know, mold is actually caused by the, the moisture building up with, with uh, lack of ventilation that is something that they can control. Sometimes you find you work with a tenant, you find, well, they feel too unsafe to open the windows, and that's the problem there, and there may be some way to get around that. Um, you know, that, that people hadn't been thinking of. And, and so we can work together to find creative solutions. But um, I, I, um, I think that in a situation like yours, either with the locks or the mold, um, that it could have happened the other way. The tenant could have come to us first. And um, we could have um, advised that tenant that, you know, hey, have you tried to open the windows? Um, ventilation is often an issue behind, behind mold growth. And, um, and, and so that's, that's just a perfect example when we feel like uh, we're unable or the tenant's un unable to sort of get the landlord to respond. Well, then the apartment association go, can go work with the landlord and speak to them in their language, you know, and it's sort of the same thing uh, in, in the reverse where, uh, whereas you may have trouble getting the tenant to sort of understand or respond, or maybe they're just suspicious of you as the landlord telling them to do such and such. When we work with them and talk with them and, again, sort of speak to them in their language and explain to them why it's actually a, a good idea um, for their own purposes to maybe work on opening the windows or whatever, you know, whatever it takes, or providing the landlord with a key um, that, again, there are, are just as there are legal ramifications for a landlord uh, who doesn't follow the law, it's, you know, same goes for the tenant. We can advise them that, you know, actually the law requires you to provide your owner with a key and you can get in trouble for not doing that. And, you know, we can help explain those things. So this is a perfect example of, of how this program works really well. Thanks. Thanks, sir. We can take, I think, one more question. We're running a little over. Did you have a question for us? Yes, I have a question about, um, you've spent a lot of time talking about the obligations of owners to maintain property. And it occurs to me, I live in a neighborhood where there are lots of abandoned houses. So the um, houses are deteriorating, the, you know, 
um, broken down cars are piling up in front of the house and that type of thing. Is there another forum that um, we can use to address those types of things? There are no tenants involved. The, the houses are abandoned. In situations where there is a vacant building, the owner is still responsible to make sure that that building is secure and that there are no imminent hazards. They, it can be vacant, but it has to be properly secured. And if there are other issues going on with it, you can make a complaint to uh, the Department of Building Inspection, the Health Department, if there's debris within the yard. With respect to um, car vehicles and things of that nature, we would want to get the Planning Department, perhaps the DPW involved if we've got cars on the, the, the right-of-way and some other city agencies. So it could be a cluster of agencies that would be involved with that. Yvonne, would, would there be anything else you might recommend? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, one of the best places to start might be to make a complaint to the city attorney's office because we will funnel, we will either take that issue and do an inspection bringing the relevant departments, planning, health, DBI, to address all of the issues that are happening because abandoned vehicles are, are dealt with by the health department, et cetera, et cetera. So if you call the main number, 554-3800, and ask for the code enforcement hotline, Somebody will take down that complaint and then give it to the deputy city attorney assigned to the district um, where that complaint, where that property resides. And we can thank start you. from there. Thank you. You're welcome. So I want to thank the panel for uh, taking the time to come here today to address your questions. If you would like to ask more questions, we're going to be repeating this tomorrow at the same time, same location. There are other panels going out, at least I think um, Bill, there's, there's more panels going out through the rest of the day. Let's put the uh, schedule up on the board. And I've got a few announcements uh, to make very briefly. For those of you who are in, uh, interested in the phenomenon when you've got hoarding cluttering, you've got an individual that you're having to deal with as a property owner or you're an individual who um, has gathered an excessive amount of items that it's affecting your lifestyle, the San Francisco um, Health Association is putting on a conference next Thursday in the conference area at St. Mary's Cathedral on hoarding and cluttering. I'll be a speaker at that. Um, and that that is definitely, if anybody is interested in that, you can see me afterwards or they've got a website on that. Um, also, please um, feel free to get some of the information at the back of the room uh, as of a few months ago. The lead section uh, is now within the Housing Inspection Services Division, so we have that expertise as well. Um, also, for you property owners and contractors out there, there is a booth um, in the lobby that deals with infrared cameras, and although I don't have any stock in the company, we did purchase one of those because they're an excellent tool to be able to look you know, inside walls when you have different types of leaks. And again, we all know that moisture retention is one of the major causes of mold and mildew. So when you have certain types of hot spots in the building, it's a great tool to consider to add to your repertoire and be able to deal with these types of situations. So with that, we thank you for coming. And if you have any other questions afterwards, we'd be happy to answer them. Thank you again. <laughs>